I want to welcome you to week number nine. Week number nine of our Revelation sermon series. There's a lot of kids leaving. That's pretty exciting stuff right there, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to let them all go and, and uh, have a great time out there. Um, it's been a crazy week, hasn't it? I don't know about you guys. Uh, Christy went out of town for uh, Wednesday through this afternoon. So I was a single dad with six kids this week trying to get ready for today. And uh, two weeks ago, I wore a suit. Today, I'm like, T-shirt, that's it. Oh, we're just going to rock that, and we're going to call it good. But, you know, um, I was excited that my kids all got here. I counted all of them. They were all in the van when we got here and when we got out, so that was good. And uh, they all had the things that they needed, like my daughter had a cochlear implant and her glasses and her hair was combed, which I was like... <laughs> Victory! I get an award. That's the way it works here, right? But guys, I am so glad you're with us today. And as we're in our week number nine of our Revelation series, the last letter actually of our seven letters to the seven churches, there's a couple things I want to remind you about as we dive in. The first thing is, is this. We are going through these seven letters, and these are seven separate letters in Revelation to seven churches. But we also need to remember as we move forward to starting next week, this is one letter that is also written to all seven of those churches. So we're not done focusing on those churches. We're not done focusing on us after today. So we need to remember that as we continue to, to move forward as we look at this letter. The second thing is, we're in Revelation, and there are three parts to it. As a matter of fact, John lays it out in Revelation 1.19. He says, uh, what Jesus tells him, he says, I want you to write what was, what is, and what is to come. What was, what you're seeing, he wrote in the beginning of chapter 1. What is, is what we are dealing with right now. And starting next week, we're going to be getting into that what is to come thing. So some of you guys are probably a little bit excited about it. I'm not. Um, because that is the hardest part of this book. So uh, I'm just going to stay in this letter for a little longer than, than normal today. Third thing is, one thing we have to remember as we move forward, it is all about Jesus. This book is all about Jesus. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we miss that fact, then we miss everything else about the book. We miss everything else if we get out of the context that it's all about Jesus. So please remember that as we move forward. Well, today, like I said, we're in the last of the individual letters. The letter to a church called Laodicea. Now, Laodicea is found in, or the letter is found in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up there. If you have your digital devices, you can go to there. But I'm not sure if you've noticed, if we've gone through these letters, there's some things that we can see. And some of those things that we can see is, one, they all kind of have the same appeal. Uh, the writing style, as Jesus points it out, we've talked about our seas. We've talked about the church or the city. We've talked about how it talks about Christ. We talk about a commendation. We've talked about a criticism or a condemnation. Uh, we talk about a correction. We talk about a challenge, our, our C alliteration. Each one of these letters have that. But there's something else that I've noticed as I've been reading through this. And the second thing is, is that these seven letters actually build on each other. And as you look at them, you can kind of see when it talks about Ephesus from the beginning and losing its first love, then jumping to Smyrna and talking about making yourself through trials, holding on to Jesus through trials. You see it continue to build it on each other. And the great thing is if you look up here, I'm not sure if you're aware that this is actually the layout of, that, that, uh, of Turkey basically now, but the city's kind of go in a circle and the way the letters are written also go in a circle that's because there was a circular male pattern and male as an m-a-i-l uh not like circular male pattern here uh, but there is a circular male pattern at the way they delivered the letters so it's interesting to see that first of all he's writing along the lines of that male pattern for these letters to get delivered but also that they build on top of each other. So as they do, what we're going to see today is we are going to see a church that didn't have one of those or commendations. Of all the seven letters, all of them had something that Jesus praised them for, except for this one. And so it's kind of the climax of the letters, and as we're going to hit it, we're going to see that Laodicea had a bit of a pride issue. A bit of a pride issue that they thought they could do it 
on their own. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to, as I said, they build on each other. I kind of want to take you back to last week, and I want to first of all say thank you to Keith Williams for, for filling in for me last week. Keith, Keith tackled the church at Philly, and it's funny because I was going to do that one, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to set it up where I walk in playing Motown Philly by Boys to Men, you know, and walking in. And, and, but Keith's like, no, I want to do that one. I said, you got it. Go ahead and do it. But really, it's opposite of Laodicea. It had no criticism. It only had praise. And its challenge was to continue to hold on to Jesus. And I know that that message was hard. I know it was hard for Keith. Because he mentioned some serious, heavy family issues that he's having to walk through and, and go through with all of this. And they, they've really experienced a lot over the last year. And the passing of his youngest son, Brian, uh, the day before Easter last year. Um, and then coming back to talking about his oldest son, Jeremy, who's been battling an unknown, really it was unknown sickness for the last really two years and it turns out that it's parasites in his body that he picked up on a mission trip to Cambodia. And it's just really been kind of ravaging his, his body. And, and there's just a lot as a parent to, to talk about in all of that. And then to share that in such a way to say, even through the hardest times, you have to hold on to Jesus. So I appreciate Keith bringing that message and sharing that with us as he did. And you know, one of the questions that he had last week, and it was kind of the title question of the message, was how much strength do you have? How much strength do you have? And I'm not sure if you're aware, but as Keith was sharing these personal stories, the answer is we have all the strength we need in Jesus. Remember, this is all about Jesus. And so we look back at that, and we see that in the mountaintop experiences that it's all about Jesus. We can praise Him there, and we can also praise Him in our valleys and that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death we see that in this he says hold on to jesus but as this letter continues to build and the letter we look at today it's like it flips because the church at laodicea didn't hold on to jesus they hold, held on to their own abilities their own uh, accomplishments they had their own treasures that they relied on this is how they lived so what i want to do today is i want to dive into this letter and take a deeper look at what's going on and what jesus has to say to them and what jesus has to say to us so if you are able would you please stand with me as we read revelation chapter 3 verses 14 through 22 and i'm going to just tell you something um, i had to schedule an eye appointment because for the first time in 46 plus years i couldn't read my bible without having to do the 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 arm length so if i switch back to my ipad i apologize i like to read from my bible but i can actually see that so um here we go write to the angel of the church at laodicea thus says the amen the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness not exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to, into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I have conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you speak to us this morning. I pray that my words are aside and your words speak to us. That your words speak to our heart, that they challenge us, that wherever we are, that we can be zealous. And if we're in that place that we need to repent, to repent. God, work on our hearts, work on our minds, and most of all, glorify yourself in all of this. We pray it in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks for standing with me. You know, it's been amazing to me to watch and see this letter to the churches at Revelation, all, all or sorry, the churches in the book of Revelation 
to see that this was written almost 2,000 years ago, but how applicable it still is today. God's word is alive. God's word is active, and he's working on, on our hearts. I know he's working on mine. And as I read this, I just pray that he speaks to us in a way. And, and the thing is, is, as I look back, I go, man, 2,000 years of having the Bible, of having these letters, you'd almost think that we had it figured out by now, right? You, you'd kind of think that, that we are smart enough. I mean, we have all the books, we have all the commentaries, we have all of the technology. I had to laugh the other day. My daughter asked me a question, and I said, why are you asking me a question? You have Google, okay? Because that's the truth of the matter. I don't know the answer. I'm just going to Google it for you, so save me a step. Uh, why have we not figured these things out? And you know, I mean, even if we didn't have all that stuff, we have history, right? We should learn from history, shouldn't we? Plus, we're proud people we should be able to do this on our own. I mean, we have rallied around phrases in our lives like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I have no idea what that actually means, but apparently it's supposed to encourage us to do something for ourselves. We have that idea that I can do it. If you want things to be done right, what do you have to do? You have to do it yourself. So you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, we have rallied around this. Always look out for number one. Okay? The most famous one, God helps those who help themselves. How many of you guys think that's in the Bible? Just out of curiosity. Do you know that 82% of Americans believe that phrase is in the Bible? But I saw all, none of your hands went up, so you guys obviously fall in the 19% that don't think so that are evangelical Christians because 81% of evangelical Christians believe that's in the Bible. God helps those who help them selves. When we look at that, look at each one of those statements, look at the, look what I've done, it all focuses on a common denominator, which is me. It's self. Well, ancient people in the churches of these letters that, that, as we've talked about, they had the temple of Artemis, and they had all the temples of Apollos, and all these different, Zeus God, all the different, they had hundreds, maybe even thousands of false gods to worship. Ours gets kind of narrowed down. We don't have all those other things to chase after. Although all those other things have the same thing in common as the one we're going to talk about today, and that is self. It is pride, self-help. If you still went to a bookstore, they have huge sections on that. Self-worth, self-confidence, self-expression. We have a lot of words that have self in front of it. It's all about us. It's about our individualism. It's about our rights. It's about our interpretation of what God says. It's about our interpretation of, of how he's speaking to us. There's words even like our truth, which still just kind of blows me away. It's our perception. There's a word that has self in front of it, and that's reliance, and that's one that kind of stands out to me. I'm, I'm one who likes to do things on my own, and if I can't figure out, you know where I go? YouTube. Because there's somebody in there who's going to show me how to do it. I, I don't need to ask for help. And if I do, I've hit a place. You know, it's kind of like um, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, I like to watch He-Man. And when He-Man would go from the, just the average dude, and he would jump on the battle cat, and he'd hold the, f the sword, and what would he say? I have the power. That's right. We have some 80s friends in here. I have the power. Actually, it's by the power of Grayskull I have the power, but I, I'll, I'll leave the first part out. I have the power, and in it, I have my own source of strength, and I can rely on that. I just have to, you know what I have to do? I just have to dig down deeper, and I have to find it, right? That's, that's what we tell people. That's how we challenge ourselves in it all. But remember the question from last week? How much strength do you have? How much strength do you have? See, our biggest problem with the type of thinking, especially in the church, is when we think that our abilities and our resources and our strength is sufficient, pride is going to swell up. And actually, Bruce and I were talking on Friday. You know what the first step that this lukewarm thinking is that Jesus talks about in Laodicea? The first step is letting your head get filled with pride and letting your heart get filled with pride. And when that starts to happen, everything starts to unravel. It's that, we got this. Look what I did mentality. It leads us away from the mission that Christ has put us on. As a matter of fact, it doesn't just lead us away from the mission that Christ puts us on, but 
it leads us away from Christ. And our self-reliance puts it where we're not reliant on him and his authority. And that's when our perception and our truth start to reign in our lives instead of Christ. As we're going to see in this letter to the Laodiceans, they're going to have their eyes open to the truth real soon because they were blind. And the crazy thing is, is from what I read, they didn't even know it. They weren't even aware that they were blind, but they soon would come face to face with the authority of Christ and they would get that condemnation, that criticism. And as they had that condemnation and that criticism, maybe even a bigger word to use would be the word rebuke. Rebuke, and nobody likes that. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But before we jump into the sea of condemnation and the sea of criticism, let's look at the sea of the church and the city. Because what Jesus has to say speaks very clearly to the church and the city here. So the city of Laodicea, it was located in the Lycus Valley. It was about 10 miles east of Colossae, which is where we got our book for the Colossians. As well as about six miles to the north, you have the city of Hierapolis. Now, that's going to be important for a couple of reasons here soon. But here's what we need to understand. It was a wealthy city. And not just a wealthy city. They were at the crossroads of a major trading route. Two major trading routes, as a matter of fact. In that city, they were big into banking. They actually minted their own coins. And so they had plenty of money. So much so that an earthquake happened in 60 AD and they refused government help to rebuild the city. They did it on their own. What a great thing to be able to say. We don't need your help. We're not taking out any PPP loans. We are going to do this on our own. And so that's the first thing we see in them. The second thing is they are also known for this shiny black wool. And this shiny black wool was something that people longed for, and it was an expensive thing to use to make clothes. Once again, they were wealthy. They are also famous for their medical school. They had multiple physicians, and they had a, a powder and ointment that was used to heal ears and eyes, which both of which I could probably use today so I could actually read my Bible instead of my iPad. But here's the thing. The city had it all except for one major thing one life sustaining thing and you know what that one thing was good drinking water they were missing good drinking water but they, they were smart and they were wealthy and they had engineers so you know what they did they actually engineered two separate aqueducts and the two separate aqueducts one came from Colossae Colossae was known for its refreshingly cool water so 10 miles away was Colossae. They built an underground aqueduct to pump in water into their city. On the other side, you had Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. So you get cool water, cold water coming in from Colossae. Six miles away, you're going to get hot spring water coming in from Hierapolis. They had figured it out. The one thing they hadn't figured out yet is how to insulate those aqueducts and how to keep those aqueducts clean. So as this water would come in from the cities, it would start to pick up junk. All the different sediments and all the different dirts and all the different kind of things like that would get picked up as they were coming in. Something else would happen is it would lose its temperature. So it was no longer hot coming in or cold coming in, but from both sides it was lukewarm. Jesus is speaking literally to them. He's opening up the doors to them to see what they're doing. This lukewarm water would actually create a sickness in visitors because they weren't used to it. Anybody ever gone to Mexico? What are you not supposed to do when you go to Mexico? Don't drink the water. These guys, they would drink the water, and you know what it would cause them to do? Vomit. It would cause them to vomit. I know. Thanks. I appreciate that, Liz. I like the crinkled nose. We're going to get into more vomit here in a second, just to let you know. Here's the thing. One scholar actually put it this way. He said this. For all its wealth, Laodicea could produce neither the healing power of hot water nor the refreshing power of cold water, but merely lukewarm water, usefully, useful as only an emetic or something that causes you to emit from your stomach. That background actually will help us put Jesus' words into context. So speaking of Jesus, let's jump to our next C, Christ. 
Here's how Christ is described in this one. He's described in each letter in a different way. This is what it says. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. The amen, the faithful and true witness, or it could be even better translated, the amen that is the faithful and true witness. Did you know that amen is one of the most universal words in all of human language? If you go to any country and you go back into the Greek, you go back into the Hebrew, you go back into the Latin, you go and listen to Spanish, you go and listen to German, the word amen is across the board. It's across the board. Um, I, I used to uh, get to go on mission trips a whole lot more when I was younger, when I was, I was able to travel a whole lot more. And I got to go to Cuba. I got to go to Mexico. I got to go into Honduras. Uh, but every single place I went to, as they prayed, you know, I always add this, Alleluia, Amen. Alleluia. That was kind of their, you know, when people throw in a whole lot of Father Gods when they're praying, theirs was Alleluia, Amen. And so they were throwing that in there and they, they were saying it. But why? Why do we even say amen in the first place? Does anybody know? I agree. I agree with the truthfulness of that statement. What I have just prayed, I pray in agreement with. I stand on that. As a matter of fact, the original languages said to make firm, to hold tight, to hold up, to solid or a solid foundation of truth. Christ is faithful. That's what he's saying here. Forever you are faithful. Forever you are true. Do we believe that or do we just sing that song when we first got going this morning? Because it's a big deal for us to know that he is all he says he is. That he will do all he says he's going to do. He is in all of that he does. And he's not a hypocrite. He is 100% authentic. He is the real deal. Now, that's important because what we're going to see next is he talks about because who he says he is, we must also know that what he's going to say next, we can trust and believe. But the Laodicean church, that wasn't the way they were. They were hypocrites. They weren't following through with them. So we see a completely opposite thing here. The next word we see here is this word, the originator. The originator, the Greek is arche. Arche, if you just want to spell it R and K, that is fine. Translated means this. It means the first, the origin, the first cause, the authority, the ruler. You know what Christ is saying here? I am the all in all. I am in all. I am over all. And he was not created. Now, there's many cults out there that believe that Jesus was created, but he was not. He was, he is, and he is to come. And I think part of the reason why he's saying this is because they were so close to the city of Colossae. If you read the book of Colossians, you know what it's all about? The deity of Christ and who Christ is. So obviously some of the false teaching that was in Colossae had spilled over to Laodicea. So he's going up there and he's talking about this. And he says this, Remember who I am. How many of us tend to forget who Christ is? That he is the faithful one, that he is the true one, that he is the Lord of all, that he is the ruler, that he is the chief. How many times do we forget it? Because a lot of times when I think about how, when I forget it, my life reflects it. When I drift from Christ, my life reflects it. I'm not sure if you guys have been doing the Who's Your One devotional. Uh, we kind of challenged you to do that last week with the Version Bible app. You still can pick it up. You still can go for it because we're still 41 days till Easter. So technically, as long as you do it over the weekend, you can get all 40 days done. But I started on Thursday. Um, yesterday's said this. I just want to read for you on why we share with our one. It says, we declare what we, mo what we are most excited about. We naturally share things we find most appealing or beautiful. Likewise, we are motivated to share the gospel because our eyes have seen the beauty of God himself. We have experienced his goodness, glory, and mighty works, and we are compelled to share this with others, including our one. We share the glory we have borne witness to. You know who God is. Do you realize what he's done in your life? See, even as a pastor... 
It doesn't flow naturally for me. You want to talk about Aaron Rodgers and the diva that he is? I'd be happy to talk to you about that. If you want to talk about baseball strikes and why they're making a terrible mistake and I should be at spring training this week, I'll be happy to talk to you about that. But when it comes to the gospel, shouldn't that be the thing? Because it's the life-changing thing that happened for me. Uh, we had some work done in our backyard, and one of the guys that was working there uh, doing some concrete for me, um, we started talking about the gospel. Found out he went to church, and, and we got into this kind of interesting conversation, and uh, he goes to a, a KJV-only church, and he was kind of saying, hey, you should be KJV-only. And I'm like, good luck with that. Um, I haven't been for my whole life, and it's not going to start today. And so we started getting into this conversation, and I said, hey, you're more than welcome to come check us out if you want to. You can see that we're just a church just like you. And he was wearing jeans and a sweatshirt. He's like, well, I'm wearing this. I'm like, I'm going to wear a T-shirt, so come on, let's do it. You know, uh, the, the, the idea of letting the conversation flow, though, kind of came well yesterday, but it doesn't always. How about for us? Does it flow from that idea of of knowing who Jesus is or do we forget who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing and the faithfulness that he said he's going to do it and he will do it. What Jesus starts, he's going to complete. And unlike us in the Laodicean church, he's not going to drift from that. Sometimes we drift and we become complacent or a word that, that I really don't like but it fits me too often is apathetic. Just bleh. The thing is, is Christ isn't happy with apathy. He, he's not happy with apathy, and that's when this condemnation comes in. He says this next. He says, I know your works. That's been every step along the way. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. The way, the truth, the life, the one who calls it like he sees it, uh, Reese, there you are over there. He, he told me the other day, he's like, Matt, one thing I know about you is that I know exactly what you're thinking because you don't have a filter. You call it like you see it. And unfortunately, that's a good thing sometimes and a bad thing other times. For Jesus, it's a good thing. And he calls it exactly like he sees it. The creator of all, the ruler of all says, hey, I know your works. I know the shape your church is in. I know that you are a mess, even though you're trying to hide it. There's nothing to praise. There was no commendation, nothing to rejoice in. Instead, he says, you know what? You make me sick. You make me sick. Now, I don't know anybody who likes those words coming from somebody else about you. Hey, you know what? You make me sick. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. But coming from the ruler of the universe, it's a whole lot more powerful. If we're making him sick, something's wrong. He says, you're lukewarm like the water here that makes visitors puke. That is where we're at. You are lukewarm. You're useless like the water here. There's nothing you can do about it. You're not hot because, it, as it said, there was the spiritual healing properties that come with being on fire, the life-changing power of the gospel. You're not doing that, and you're not cold. The quenching of people's thirst for refreshment that need the gospel. You're neither hot nor cold. I know you probably heard it preached other ways that Jesus wants you on fire or he wants you opposed to him. I can't imagine Jesus ever saying he wants you opposed to him. But maybe it's just better than being lukewarm. I don't know. The way I see it is he wants you to be either on fire and helping people in that healing process and meeting Jesus because they need to be healed from sin, or that you are cold and refreshing and sharing the gospel in such a way to quench the thirst people need but he says you know what you're lukewarm you're indifferent and ignorant to the present condition and you don't care about others spiritual condition you don't care about your one and you don't care about anybody else who's your one so as we look at that i think about the book of james in james chapter 2 james is probably my favorite book of the bible just very practical. It hits me in the face every time I read it. But listen to what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. You can read it on the screen with me if you want. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. 
but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, you are willing to learn that faith without works is useless. Are you willing to learn that? If we're not living it out, it's useless. We've asked this question a handful of times. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Laodicea was doing stuff in the flesh. They were doing stuff for their own personal gain. They were doing stuff for their own personal reputation. But the thing is, is even as Jesus talks about it, they're not even doing it well. They're just doing it to do it. They're insincere and they're apathetic in what they did and they didn't even seem to care that they were insincere and apathetic. They went to church. Why? Because they wanted the community. Because they wanted to get time together. They wanted to hear an inspiring talk. They wanted to hear some good music. But why? Why would they want that? Well, I think it's the same reason that atheist churches, or as they like to be called, assemblies, they don't like to be called church, atheist churches or atheist assemblies get together. They get together because we do have a need for community. It's one of our things on our wall right here. I can't do life alone. We need that community. But in that, they say, hey, let's connect. Let's not worry about accepting or rejecting Jesus. Let's just do our thing. Let's just be here for each other. Let's just do some cool things within the community even. Let, let's get together and do a food drive. We, we can be those things, but we just don't need to include Jesus into that. That's where we find Laodicea. That's where we find many churches even today. And I think the only difference between the Atheist Assembly and many churches today and the church at Laodicea, I think it's this. It's the atheists actually know why they do what they do. They have a purpose in that. The spiritually apathetic church does not. The spiritually apathetic church does not. So Christ's reaction to this spiritually lame church is what? He says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And from what I read, it's not just vomit. It's violent vomit. We used to call it power puke, where it just blasts out. And if you've had children and you're holding them in just the right way, they tend to do it right here. I've had it happen a time or two in my life where you're like, pff, pff, you know, you're, you're trying, it just, it's just, and it's, it, it's like a fountain. It's amazing. Projectile, yes. It is just blasting out. And Jesus says, you make me that sick. You make me that sick. Jesus knows. He knows their condition. And even if it looks good on the outside, which it did, he knows our condition on the inside. He knows past, as, as Keith talked about last week, that Sunday smile that we put on when we come in here and we act as if everything's okay, but we go home and realize it's really not. He knows if we're hot, he knows if we're cold, or he knows if we're spiritually indifferent and if really focused on self. He knows that. Christ knows their self-indulgent lifestyle, but guess what? He knows ours too. He knows ours too. He knows our mindset of I've got this. I don't really need God until I need God right? When do we pray? It's not generally at the good times. It's like, oh, I don't know what else to do, which I'm fine with that, but I'd also like us to be praying in the good times. Let's stay connected with God through prayer in that. They may have thought they had it all together. We may think we have it all together, but let me tell you this. Without Jesus, your life is a mess. The church is a mess without Jesus. Or to go back to the book of James, it's really useless. And that's why he says this next in verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So he's pointing out back to the ties to the city. The money, the wool, the ointments, because that's all they thought they needed was all of the physical resources that somehow that was going to keep them going in the way they needed to go. But I love how it says they didn't realize, because those words I think are important. They didn't realize. They failed to know that all of those things weren't going to do it. So Jesus says, let me enlighten you of what you think you know versus what's actually true. Instead of being rich, you're wretched. Wretched. You know what that word is? It means miserable. It's actually a word that was used to describe a devastated land, something that had been pillaged. 
That's where your life is. Instead of having it all together, you're pitiful. Now again, reference to 80s. Anybody know where I'm going with this? A-team? Little Mr. T action? B.A. Rockets? What's he say? I pity the fool. That's right. I'm glad everybody in here knows what I'm talking about. We're on the same page here. That's where we're at. It's to be sad. It's to be sorry. It's to be pitied. Instead of wealthy, you are poor. Can you imagine being a wealthy person and being told that you are poor? It'd be kind of like a slap in the face. But here's the thing. He's saying you're the lowest class of beggar. You're not just poor. You're wretched and poor and pitiful. And also, by the way, you guys talk about eyesight and you know all this stuff with all your doctors in town. You guys are blind. The ointment you make cannot remove your spiritual blindness. Instead of garments, all the garments that you guys make, the black wool and all the amazing things, you guys are naked. You're naked. No amazing clothing is going to cover up your true condition. How often do we try and put on amazing clothing to cover up our true condition? I like what it says in John 9, 39, when Jesus says this, I came into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. This judgment that he's laying down is to open their eyes. It's, to, it's because he loves them, by the way, and we're going to see that here in a second. The judgment he just dropped in the church, the truth that has been revealed, they went from, well, they didn't realize to, oh, geez, now we realize. Now we realize, and when we realize our poor condition, we have a choice. We have a choice to do something about it or not, Right? To do something about it or not, to recognize a problem and fix it, or recognize a problem and sweep it under the rug. Well, how do you fix it? Well, good thing Jesus tells us. Correction. He tells us this. And by the way, I want you to know this. As Jesus calls it like he sees it, he never says, hey, I pushed you aside. I don't want you anymore. He never sets aside his love. He never sets aside his grace, and he never sets aside his mercy. He says, as we'll see here, that he's waiting. He wasn't done with them it wasn't too late for them to turn back to them as a matter of fact it says this in verse 18 I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich white clothes so you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not to be exposed and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see so as you look right here this is the how and we can go into all the details of the how but I'm just going to give you the very quick how stop trusting in yourself and trust in him that is the how How do we get out of this lukewarmness? We put our trust in him. We turn back to him. Buy from me, he says, the true provider that provides everlasting riches, not some stuff that you're going to like and then take it to goodwill in just a couple of months, not worldly things that are going to fade. And he says, I want you to buy from me. And how do we buy things? Well, we purchase with faith, we purchase with trust, and we purchase with complete dependence on him and only him. And whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, if you're sitting here this morning as a believer in Jesus, or if you're sitting here this morning and you're not, the cure for spiritual poverty is the same. And that is this. First, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, trust him with your life both now and eternally. And third, be completely dependent on him every day. Because guess what? As much as we think we can, we cannot do it on our own. Then he shifts to this idea of white clothes. How many of you guys in here ever did the wordless book or like one of those wordless bracelets at VBS or led the teaching class for one of those kind of things? What is the color that represents sin? It's black. What is the color of the wool that they are using to cover up their spiritual condition? Weird coincidence, isn't it? It's crazy. But then yet Jesus says in this that I want you to put on what color clothes? White. Because Jesus has washed us white as snow, right? It's weird how all this stuff ties together. Coincidence, I'm sure. Thanks. (laughs) Christ has given us himself. Christ has imputed righteousness. He's put his righteousness on us so that we may be white. That's what he's challenged us to do. Don't cover up all the things with your pride and your sin, but instead grow in him. And then he says, hey, you guys have this great ointment made by these great physicians that's able to cure all these different things, but the one thing it can't cure is spiritual blindness. But you know what? The great physician can cure your spiritual blindness. He can open your eyes to the truth of the gospel, and he can use it to change your life. He will point out the areas that need to be changed, and he's going to remove those spiritual blind spots, and all of us have them, 
if we let him. But the problem is when we ask him to do that, it's going to hurt. That idea of rebuke hurts just a little bit. As a matter of fact, that's the next part of correction. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. I rebuke and discipline. Did you hear that? The ones that he loves, he rebukes and discipline. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, we'll go into a little bit more detail on that one. But let me just tell you this. Love isn't just affirming people in their sin because you're afraid of hurting their feelings. It is speaking the truth in love. And we have to understand Christ is going to move us from where we are to where he wants us to be. And sometimes because we're rebellious people, we're going to want to fight against that. We don't want it because we like our sin. Can I just be the first person to tell you that sin is fun? At least temporarily. The consequences of sin is not fun. But sin is fun or else we wouldn't be doing. We wouldn't be rebelling against the creator of the universe to do it if it wasn't something that we enjoyed. But the thing is, we have to set ourselves aside. We have to put away our selfishness and we have to listen to him. Because when our selfishness is in the way, you know what we say? The same thing that we said to our parents. Same thing we said to our friends when they tried to correct us. Well, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, I'll be honest with you. He's the Lord God Almighty. The Amen. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Two commands. How huge are those two commands? Be zealous. Translation, be on fire. Be on fire. Burn with intensity. Kind of connects with that whole hot water thing. Once again, it's coincidence, I'm sure. But he says this. Have this strong, burning desire for Jesus. And if you don't, what should you do? Repent. Because you're walking the wrong way. To repent means to make a 180, to turn back. Because it's not about you. Turn away from the thinking that says it's about you. And we have to do it, guess what? Daily. And sometimes more than once a day. Sometimes we think, oh, repentance was just when I got, met Jesus. I'm supposed to repent of my sins. No, it's repentance daily kind of thing. Otherwise, we're going to drift into, guess what? Lukewarm. Apathy. Indifference. We're going to be lukewarm towards Jesus because we don't have the fire for him. But the problem is we'll have the fire for something else. Let me ask you, what are you zealous for? What do you burn for? What's that thing that, that, that stirs you up? What are you living for? And be honest because Jesus knows. You can't blow smoke. Remember, I told you that week one. People have reminded me of that a couple of times. I, said, I can't believe you said you can't blow smoke up Jesus' robe. It's still the truth. It's still the truth. We can't. We can't blow smoke up. He knows. Sometimes the things that we're burning for, the things that Laodiceans wanted, it's money, it's the clothes, it's the reputation, it's self-reliance. Where's your security found? What satisfies you? For some of us, it's family. For some of us, it's reputation. For some things I've already mentioned that I talked about with, with money and clothes and reputation. But for others of us, it's, it's activity. And I, I know one of my things growing up, it was sports. And maybe you guys fall into that same thing. Because, you know, I love sports. I played sports all of my growing up life. I played baseball, I played basketball, I played football, I played whatever we were playing on the school grounds. It, it didn't matter. I was always doing something. And sports got me through high school because you had to have a C average to be able to play, so I tried. Sports got me through college because basketball in college literally started in August and ended in April, and that was the school year. So it made school easier because it gave me something that I actually wanted to do. And I'll tell you, my parents spent a lot of time. They spent a lot of money. They spent a lot of effort on sports. And my parents also had a rule about sports. You know what that rule was? No games on Sundays. You don't get to go to any of the things on Sundays. Man, my parents weren't even like good, strong Christians, but that was one thing they held to. I remember my parents and my coaches getting into heated discussions about whether I should play or not. And my parents won. I did not play on Sundays. You know how many times I disliked that idea? Every time. But I look back now and I'm glad they did because I can tell you this, that Jesus is more important. Jesus is Lord of all. There is less than a one in 100th chance that I would have made it into a pro sport as any other kid that 
play sports, as I watched parts of the NFL Combine this weekend. Those are some amazing athletes. Those truly are the best of the best coming out of college. And the percentage of those that were good in high school, I mean, it, it's literally like 0.001% of high school athletes that become where they go to the NFL Combine. And then you have to get drafted, and then you have to stay. I'm not sure if you guys will watch the, the Kurt Warner movie, uh, American Underdog. Uh, pretty, good, pretty good movie of uh, him kind of growing up, going from working at a high V stocking shelves to uh, Super Bowl champion with the Rams, all kind of in a, in a cool span of a couple of years. But in there, he, gets, he, he plays at University of Northern Iowa. He doesn't get drafted, but he gets called by the Packers. He lasts two days with them before he's cut because then there's a guy by the name of Brett Favre maybe you've heard of him um, he, uh, he was already on there and a couple other guys so he got cut and he was good he was good enough to get the call but when you live for that man and even if you make it you're, there's a l limited chance you're going to make it more than three years that's the average professional athlete's career what is your life all about? I remember my senior year. I've told you this before. I, I remember we won the national championship in basketball uh, in my college senior year. Nothing huge. It was the National Christian College Athletic Association. So it wasn't like, ooh. But um, I got a cool watch. Don't know where it's at still. But here's the thing. I remember sitting there at the end crying. And my coach going, you all right? I said, it's done. I've been playing basketball my whole life, and today was it. Now what? See, there's a limited chance that you're going to make it to pros. There's a limited chance your kids are, but I can guarantee you this. There's a 100% chance they're going to meet Jesus. And he's more important. And we as parents are the disciple makers, not even the church. The church just gets to help you on that. Parents are the disciple makers. How are we discipling them? Are we giving them zeal for Jesus or apathy towards Jesus and zeal towards something else? How are we teaching them next part of this passage is a verse that's been used in evangelism for a long time and has application for unbelievers but this letter is being written to who? A church. So listen to it from that perspective. It says see verse 20. Look, take note, wake up from your spiritual slumber I stand at the door and knock. The door has been closed to Jesus. Anytime a church closes the door to Jesus that's a problem. Say hey we don't need you. We got this my pride, my hypocrisy, my lack of wanting to be rebuked because that hurts. It's keeping that door closed. But he's knocking because he's patient and he's knocking because he's merciful. It says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It says, put your pride aside and repent. Put your pride aside and repent. Open the door because I haven't given up on you yet. I want you to know me and I want to know you intimately. That's where that whole idea of eating with you and you with me, that is an intimate relationship in, in that culture. Verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will give him the right to sit with me on the throne just as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He opened the letter with I am the amen and the originator, the conqueror the one who's sitting on the throne, the truth and the ruler, the promise and the reward. You know what it is? It's that we get to rule with him. 22, let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches, listen. List of churches here. What has the Spirit said to those seven churches? We started off with Ephesus. Be careful not to lose your first love. We went to Smyrna, trust God even through suffering. Pergamum, don't compromise your doctrine. Your methods may change, but don't let the message change. Thyatira, don't compromise your morality to fit in with the world. Sardis, be on guard against the spiritual deadness. Philadelphia, rely on Jesus for his strength, and he's going to open the door for us. And then today, Laodicea, watch out for lukewarmness. Be on fire. See, the Laodicean church had let self-sufficiently take hold through pride and really their stuff, their affluence. They put their faith and they put their hope and they put their trust and they put their wealth or put it in their wealth and they put it in their abilities rather than on Christ. So then they became half-hearted, they became apathetic, they became uh, less interested in the mission and more interested in just gathering. 
And to the commander that gave the mission, they were just ho-hum. They tried to satisfy their spiritual need by using physical objects. They tried to build, and it was not working. The thing is, is their biggest problem was is they didn't realize they had a problem. Christ is knocking, knocking and they weren't answering. Do you see yourself there? Is Christ knocking and you're not answering? Do you realize you have a problem? Do you realize if you're on fire for him or not? If you are, man, be zealous. Light it up. Go. If you're not, repent. The question is, are you listening? Are you listening? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to share it. Thank you for saving it for the last 2,000 years that we can read it and hopefully apply it. God, you are good, and we give you all the praise and the honor and glory this morning. And I want to ask for forgiveness first and foremost for my apathetic stance to be more passionate about sports and to be more passionate about the teams that I follow and to be more passionate about the music that I listen to than to be about you. Because while those things have influence on my life, God, you changed my life. You've taken me from dead to life. Help me to be spiritually on fire for you. Help me to share the good news because people don't really need to know about the weather, but they do need to know about you. I pray this all in your name today, Lord. Amen. I don't know if you want to take a moment today and pray that same prayer. To pray that same idea of, of just repentance. Because it's so easy to get so caught up in things that don't matter and we forget about the one thing that truly matters, and that's Jesus. If that's not you, thank God. And be zealous. Be on fire for him. But if it is you, I challenge you to repent today as we sing this last song. I'll be down here in the front if you want to pray with me. Otherwise, this is something you can do as you stand, sit, or kneel at your seat. Kyle?